is good to see you all. If you have your Bible, go back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Reminded of a, a man, he was in a restaurant one day, and they were waiting on the server, and the server seemed like she was a long time in coming. And so he was sitting in a booth, and there was a lady sitting behind him. And so he leaned over, and he said, would it be okay if I tell you a blonde joke? The lady thought for a moment, and she said, well, before you do, you should know that I'm blind, I'm six feet tall, and I am a professional bodybuilder. The lady beside me, she's blind, she's six foot two, and she is a professional wrestler. And the lady beside her, she is six foot five inches tall, and she is blind, and she is the kickboxing champion of the world. Now, are you sure you still want to tell me the joke? And the man thought for a moment, and he said, well, not if I have to explain it three separate times. <laughs> I'm reminded of that because this is our third sermon in Luke 4, The Temptation of Jesus. But I want you to realize I'm not telling you the same thing week after week. We're going slowly through the scripture trying to uh, understand it on a deeper level. We've been talking about the power of temptation on our lives. And this is vitally important to my life. It's vitally important to your life. Every one of us in here, we face temptation. Every one of us in here, the enemy is placing temptations in front of us so that we will fall and so that we will fail. Because if we continue to give in to our temptations, we will prove ineffective for advancing the kingdom of God. As we look through the Gospel of Luke, that's been our focus. How do we advance the kingdom of God? Not just here at church, but when we go to our jobs, when we go to our college campus or our school, how do we go about advancing the kingdom of God? One of the first ways is to understand that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can find victory over our temptations. I can find victory, and you can find victory. Our sin is different. You struggle with things that I may not, and I struggle with things that you may not, but each of us, we struggle with different temptations and different sin. Heard about these three pastors, and they went to a pastor's conference. And every evening after the conference, they would go down to the restaurant, and they would spend hours just talking together. And so they got to know each other very well. Last day of the conference, one of the pastors said, you know what, I feel so close to you guys can we just share our struggles? Can we just share what we struggle with so that we can pray for one another? And they all nodded in agreement. The first one said, well, I'll go first. And he said, I'm going to tell you what, for years I have struggled with gambling. And I will go off and I will get online and I will gamble and I have lost thousands and thousands of dollars. It's almost like it's too much for me. The second pastor said, I'll pray for you on that my struggle is alcohol. My church doesn't know it. Nobody's aware of it. But at night, I will go out, and I will drink, and I will drink, and I will drink, and I am an alcoholic, and nobody knows it. And the third pastor, he stood, sat there, and he was quiet. And they looked at him and said, we're not leaving until you share your struggle as well. And so finally, he said, I struggle with gossip, and I cannot wait to get out of this place. <laughs> Every one of us, we have struggles in our life. We can try to hide them. We can try to pretend that it's not true, but it is. And that is a great tool that the enemy uses. 
in our life. Look at Luke 4. Let's review just for a moment, and then we'll get to the third and final temptation. Look at verse 1 through 3. The first temptation was to turn stones into bread, and we saw that it was a temptation for provision. Beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now remember, in chapter 3, Jesus had just been baptized. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. The voice cried out from heaven, this is my son with whom I am pleased. It's already been established that Jesus is the son of God. But the enemy comes and he questions the identity of Jesus. He says, if you really are the son of God, and we spoke during that message how important our identity is you will live how you see yourself and there's a lot of folks who they find their identity in money and so they live entirely for money there are men who find their identity at their workplace and they live entirely for advancing at their job place where you find your identity determines how you live your life you could say your identity determines your biography and so we saw that in the first temptation. The second temptation, look at verse 5. Verse 5. And then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." And Satan answered him, and Jesus answered him, I'm sorry, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The enemy laid out all the kingdoms. Jesus, you came for a kingdom. Here's a physical kingdom. You can have this if you will bow down and worship me. The enemy was laying out a shortcut for Jesus. You can abandon the cross you can abandon the humiliation. You can abandon the nails and the crown of thorns. Just worship me and I will give you all the power. And there's a lot of folks today who are so focused on the physical world and the physical pleasures and the power of the world that they neglect all spiritual things. And so we saw there was a temptation for power. And that leads us to our text today. Now look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would be with us during this time. Lord, that you would show us what you would have us to learn. Lord, that you would convict us of sin in our life. Let us to realize that it is a big deal. Lord, if we are comfortable in sin this morning, I pray that you will afflict us greatly. I pray that you will use your word and this text today in our hearts. 
to lead to a great change so that we can bring you great honor and glory and we can advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city. And it sets him upon the highest pinnacle, the highest point of the temple. The highest point probably refers to the southeast corner, which stood about 450 feet high. From this point, he could overlook the city, he could overlook the valley, he could see for a long, long ways. The temple was, of course, the religious center of the day, and it was a place of social gathering. It was a very important spot, a very important location. And although it's not mentioned in our text, you would expect that there would be great crowds of people who would be around the temple. There would be onlookers. There would be people who would be gathering, maybe coming in to pray, coming in to worship, leaving a time of worship. It would be a social gathering spot for the city. And so the enemy takes them up to this high point of the temple, and it's as if he says, you know, I tempted you with a physical kingdom. I tried to give you all the power of the world, but you rejected that. You rejected that, and I understand that you are seeking a spiritual kingdom. And so if you're here for a spiritual kingdom, why don't you go ahead and prove it? Why don't you go ahead and throw yourself down from this high point? There's going to be a lot of people who will see it. This is the way to start your kingdom and show everybody that you are truly the Messiah. What good are you doing out here in the desert? Nobody sees you. Nobody knows you. You don't have a reputation. There's nothing going on for you right here. But listen, if you will go to the temple point and you will jump off, the Bible says that the angels will come and they will lift you up. They will protect you. They will save you so that you won't even scratch your little toe upon a rock. This is the will of God for your life. Go ahead and jump off and prove who you are. When you prove it, they will see that you are the Messiah, and then you can begin your work for the spiritual kingdom. You didn't want a physical kingdom. I get that. Why don't you go ahead and jump off and show folks who you are so that you can start your spiritual kingdom? And I want you to know a scheme of the enemy is that he always demands proof. The enemy always demands proof. When you throw yourself off of this temple, it will be proven who you are. When you throw yourself off of this temple, it will prove that you are the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? This will prove it. It will prove that God loves you. You're out in this wicked desert and you are hungry and you're hurting and you are dirty. Nobody knows that you're the king of kings or the Lord of lords or the son of God. If that's who you are, why don't you prove it? And what's very interesting, and you caught this, is the enemy uses scripture to try to convince Jesus into sin. This is biblical. This is what is best for you. What I want you to understand this morning is that this may very well be the beginning of what we know as the prosperity gospel. 
the beginning of the prosperity gospel. You see, all through the life of Jesus, he faced this question. Even at his crucifixion, the Bible says in Matthew 27, it says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they looked up and they began to mock him. And they said, he saved others. Can he not save himself? He's the king of Israel. Can he not come down for the cross? Because if he does, then we will believe him. And they believe this. If you are walking in the will of God, then your life should be easy. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, then he will not suffer. He will not go through trials. He will not go through tribulations. And they believe that if he truly is the Messiah, that he will come down from the cross. But Jesus said, because I am the Messiah, I will stay on the cross. They totally missed it. And there are folks today who will look and they will be led astray by the enemy. And they will say, you know, if you're really saved, if you're really saved, if you really have faith, then your life should be very easy. They don't understand that, that we love God. We have faith, but our life might be really hard. Amen? We love God, but yet there still might be a terrible disease. We love God, but yet there might still be some problems in our families. We love God, but yet we still face difficulties. Right? Do you face difficulties? We love God, but yet we still face tragedies in this fallen world around us. It is through the trials and the tragedies of life that we still stand faithful and we do not force that God prove himself by our standards. See, the enemy is suggesting that God's love must be proven and the proof is in physical protection or well-being. The enemy is twisting scripture. I want to tell you, one of the largest false teachings today is the prosperity gospel. There are churches today that are filled as full as they could possibly be, and they are looking for a message of prosperity. They are looking for a message that says, if you will have faith, if you will be a man or woman of faith, then your life will be easy. And you've got preachers, and they're getting up, and they're taking the word of God, and they're taking Genesis, and they're saying, Abraham received a covenant from God, a covenant of great prosperity and of great blessings. And if you will follow the Lord, you too will have great prosperity and great blessings. You want an example of that? Kenneth Copeland said this. This is a direct quote. Since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. What happens if you hear that sermon and you are poor? How do you respond to that? It went on to say this. Kenneth Copeland said, The basic principle of the Christian life is to know that God put our sin, our sickness, our disease, our sorrow, our grief, and our poverty on Jesus at Calvary. Not just was your sin taken care of, but so was your sickness and your poverty. There was a preacher on TBN named John Vanzini, and this is what he said. See if you agree with this. He was talking about Jesus, and he said Jesus was a rich man. Jesus had a nice house. Jesus had a big house. Jesus was handling big money. Jesus even wore designer clothes. Can you believe that? And as he's preaching, the people are jumping up and down, and they're saying, amen, amen, glory, hallelujah. Here's the problem. That sounds good. That's not in the Bible, amen? 
It's not true. It is a false, false teaching. And they manipulate scripture. And at the end of their, their speech, they'll get up and they'll say, this is how God works. If you give $10, you're going to receive $100 back. If you give $100, you're going to receive $1,000 back. If you give $1,000, you're going to receive $10,000 back. So go ahead and send me your money, and I'll send you a prayer cloth, and you'll receive great and mighty blessings. And do you know what happens? People all over the world, they send their money in. Because they believe if they do, they will be blessed financially. They will be blessed physically. They will be rid of disease. Creflo Dollar, he's, he, this is a quote again. He says, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is the key to getting results as a Christian. Let's force the hand of God. Let's make God work on our behalf. And I want to tell you, you cannot manipulate God. Amen? God's ways are greater than our ways. And I want you to know that as we go through our Christian life, we can be right in the center of the will of God, and life might be really hard. Just because your life is tough, it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that you're outside the will of God. And if you need proof of that, look at the life of Paul. I mean, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a snake, he was, he was stoned, he had all this adversity. But as we look back today, we look at Paul and we say, that was a man that was living for the Lord in the middle of the will of God. And we've got to know that because if there's a false teaching that is growing and that is spreading all around us, it is the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. When you look at this, it changes the Bible, it changes the church, and instead of making it all about Jesus, it becomes all about me, all about us. And there's this seeker-sensitive movement to where we want to take it and we want to change the way we do church so that we can draw in crowds of people, but I want you to know it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God. It's that we will advance the kingdom of God and there will be good times and there will be bad times. There are churches full of people, not because they have surrendered their life and their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they have bought into a lie that says, if you'll be in church, your life will be easy. Reminds me of a a young lady named Maria. She had a boyfriend named Jimmy. And one day she wrote Jimmy a letter and she said, I don't want to be with you any longer. I'm tired of you. You don't make me happy. I want nothing to do with you. So they broke up. Two years later, out of the blue, Jimmy received another letter. And it was his former girlfriend. And she said, I just want you to know that I love you so much. I have been so full of sorrow for the last couple of years. I cannot imagine my life without you. We must reconnect. Please call me as soon as you can. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. <laughs> it's funny, but sometimes that's what we do with church. It's about trying to make my life easier and my life better. The enemy says the love of God must be proven. If your life is tough, it's because you've done something wrong. And it could be that while we look at those quotes and we say, I would never buy into that, it could be that there are some ways that we have fallen into the prosperity gospel. 
Have you ever in your life looked at where you are and said, God, this is not fair? You ever done that? You ever found yourself in a tragedy, maybe in, in a marriage, in a family, in a job, a health situation, and you said, God, this is not fair? I've shared this with you. My wife and I, we've been through lots of times like that. I mean, if I'm honest, there's been lots of times that I've looked at life and said, God, this doesn't make sense. But one of the greatest was when we were trying to have children. We, we longed for children, wanted children so badly, but we struggled with infertility. And so months came and months went, and Brittany was not pregnant. And then we started going to doctor visits and seeing specialists, and nothing was happening. It was just like month after month after month. And I remember in bed, I remember listening to my wife cry at night. She'd be crying in her pillow because another month came and went, and she was not pregnant. And I remember praying, this was years ago, but I remember praying and saying, God, this makes no sense. God, this is not fair at all. We worked with uh, the youth ministry at that point, and there were these high school girls who were getting pregnant. They weren't married. They had no job. They were getting pregnant, and we were praying every night together, Lord, would you please bless us with a child? Please, Lord, we're longing for a child. I remember praying. I remember saying, God, we're trying to do everything right. We are in church more often than you ought to be in church. We're always in church. We're faithful to this place. We're giving money to this place. We have got married. We've got jobs. We're able to provide for our children. But you're not blessing us. God, this makes no sense in life. God, I don't know what you're doing, but this is not right. This is not fair. God, you owe this to us. I remember that was, that was my heart. Can I tell you that is the prosperity gospel? Prosperity gospel says, listen, God, you owe me something. It says, God, we have a contract, and the contract states that if I come to church, and if I give some money, and if I'm faithful, then you must bless me in these certain ways. But can I tell you, we could go through our entire life and never receive certain blessings, but God is still good? Amen? We can go through trials and tragedy and sickness and all these different areas of life, but regardless of that, God is still God, and God is still good. And I'll tell you, you may not get your dreams here, but you'll have them one day. You'll have so much more than you can even imagine one day. And so the enemy comes and says, hey, you know what? What you need to do is prove it. Make God prove himself to you. But there's another way. There's another way that we might find ourselves in this text. Have you ever made a deal with God? Have you ever said, God, if you will, then I will Denise, I know you like the Cowboys. You were praying that last Cowboys game. God, if you will let the Cowboys win, then I'll never miss church again. And it did, not, it did not work. But there are some serious ways that we do this. God, if you will heal my family member, then I'll tell at least one person a week about you. God, if you will let me get that job, then every time I get a paycheck, I'll tithe out of my paycheck. God, if you'll get me out of this mess that I've created, then I will live for you at a new level. God, if you will help my, my family, my, my son, my daughter, they're going through a difficulty. God, if you will work in that situation, God, then I will do more for your kingdom than I ever have before. And again, that comes back to this false teaching of a contract that said, God, you are obligated to me. And a lot of us, without telling anybody, there are times that we 
try to make that deal. It may be that we put the Lord to the test a whole lot more often than we'd like to admit. Let me give you one more. It could be that there are ways that we are tempted to jump off the temple and test God. Let me give you an example. It could be that you've got in front of you, see, I told you a few weeks ago that my wife and I were on a diet. And so we're eating terrible food every day. <laughs> terrible. Maddox, we've been eating at home. We don't ever eat out anymore. And Maddox said, uh, Daddy, I miss Olive Garden. And so yesterday we went to Olive Garden and he said, I want some of that unending Alfredo sauce for my breadsticks. I said, Max, you know how much I love that stuff. You know, and he said, well, Daddy, I really want. So we got it, and they bring it out, and they're getting these breadsticks. And I think he ate 12 breadsticks just <laughs> dipping in that Alfredo sauce, you know. And I, we're eating like this salad with no dressing. I mean, it's, it's like a rabbit. You're, it's no good. But regardless of that, an example would be that you've got all that Alfredo sauce, and you've got those breadsticks, and you've got all that cheese, all that good stuff, and all the food comes out, and you know it's not healthy, but you join hands, and what do you say? Lord, would you bless this food to the nourishment of my body? <laughs> Listen, there is no nourishment in this food in front of us. That's a test of God. God, would you bless this, make us strong, make us healthy as we dive in to this fat? <laughs> You know, that, that's what we do. It's a way to test God. It could be that you do this. Lord, I've got a relationship that is outside your will, a relationship that does not bring you honor. Maybe you're a young person. I'm dating this individual, and they're not good news. I know they don't love you, but Lord, would you bless this relationship? When you do that, you're jumping off the temple, and you're saying, God, prove yourself in this test. When you say, Lord, would you bless my family, bless my children, let them to love you, but you don't lead them in the things of God, you're jumping off the temple saying, Lord, would you bless, and you're putting the Lord to the test. We say, Lord, would you bless something, would you work, would you do something, while we are doing the opposite along the way. Matthew 16, 4, it says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We want signs. We want things that we can touch, things that we can hold on to, but that's not what faith is. Well, we see that Satan appeals to proof, but next we also see that Satan appeals to our pride. He appeals to our pride. Jesus, go ahead and jump off the temple, and then everybody will see who you truly are. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Go ahead and prove it. You see, the prosperity gospel is built in pride in every way. The focus is no longer Jesus. The focus now is me. Jesus, you're better than this. Jesus, you're somebody. Jesus, jump off the temple and show them who you really are. Jesus, you're the Son of God. You deserve more than this in life. Now, what is pride? Pride is being high or exalted in attitude. It's the opposite of humility. Pride refers to being puffed up, to being inflated. Pride affects every other part of the body, and it damns spiritually. Augustine said, the source of all sin is pride. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's been said that every sin can find its root in pride. I want you to think of the two original sins. First one was the fall of Satan, original sin. You know pride was behind that? 
He wanted to take the spot of God. And so that led to that being cast out of heaven. And then you think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Again, you see pride. Satan lied to Eve and said, look, if you take this, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. That, that's the, the dream in all this. You'll be like God. It comes from pride. And I want to be honest with you, I struggle with pride in my life. Don't look at me like that because you do too, don't you? Every one of us, we struggle with pride in our life. It's something that is in our fallen nature. It's something that we must fight against in our life. And so I want to walk just a few minutes through some of the symptoms of pride, and I want you to see if this is true of your life, okay? A symptom of pride is when you always find fault or you have a harsh spirit. You always find fault or you have a harsh spirit. Pride causes us to see the best in ourselves while seeing the worst in others. We judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. It's pride when you look around and you're critical of everybody else. Some of us, we struggle with that. Sometimes it's just your nature. You sit in a service, and instead of finding the good things in the service, you find the bad things. When you look at somebody, instead of seeing the good things in their life, you focus on the negative things in their life. And you just have a harsh spirit. You always find the negative. You don't find the positive. You always think this, boy, if I was doing that, I could do it better. And you have a, a critical, harsh spirit, and I want you to know that comes from the enemy. Amen? If we are always harsh, we're always critical, we're always looking for the worst in others, then we are being fueled by pride. And so we need to check that in our life. If that's true of you, it needs to change. That comes from pride. Superficial. When we're superficial in our life, it means that we're far more concerned with what others think about us than where we really are. And we want to make sure we get rid of the sin in our life that other people see, but if there's sin that's hidden from everybody else, we don't care about it nearly as much. We are driven by what other people think about us. We are hypocritical. We are superficial. We're focused on the outside, and we neglect what's on the inside. We're defensive. We defend ourselves at all costs. You ever feel like you've got to prove that you're right all the time? That's because you have pride in your life. You ever get in an argument, and when you're in an argument, the one thing that you want to prove is that you're right and the other person is wrong? I remember when Brittany and I, we, we did, she did get pregnant. I didn't get pregnant, but she got pregnant. And uh, we brought home Mason Maddox. And it was a new world when you bring home one baby, but when you bring two babies home, it's a real new world. And I remember that there was very little sleep, and we began to fight in ways that we never have fought before. You know how those fights went? Well, let me tell you all that I'm doing for these two kids. And then she'd say, well, let me tell you all that I'm doing for these two kids. And we had this battle going back and forth, trying to prove who's doing more, trying to prove who's right in this argument or this situation in life. Listen, a lot of the relationship problems that you find yourself in, they're going to go back to pride. Can I just tell you, it doesn't matter who's right. Somebody say amen. It doesn't matter if you're right or if the other person's wrong. 
It doesn't matter if you know good and well that you're right and they're wrong. What matters is reconciliation. And when we are so, so focused on making sure that we're right and we're so defensive because we deserve an apology, we deserve better than this, who do we think that we are? That's because we have pride. Pride also shows up in presumption before God. We try to work our way to heaven. Well, let me tell you all that I do. I told you, I've had somebody tell me let, me, let me tell you how much money I've given to this church. That's pride. It's presumption. I don't ever miss church. I, I don't ever uh, miss giving my tithe. I'm always faithful. I'm somebody, almost as if God is blessed that you're here this morning. Listen, you cannot earn your salvation. We have pride when we neglect others. When we see some folks and we say, they're worth my time, they're worth my attention, but we see others and we think that we're better than they are. And so we push them off to the side. Maybe they don't have as much money as you have. Maybe they drive a different car than you drive. Maybe they live in a different address than you live at. And so you begin to judge people thinking some are better and some are worse. When we do that, it's because we have pride in our life. Let me ask you to flip to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to close up soon, I promise. You've made it. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 2 through 8. And I want to give you an example. The example of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 2 through 8. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Listen, if we want to be like Jesus, we will be filled with humility. Jesus had every right he had every opportunity to stand up and to stop the beating, to stop the crucifixion, but he did not. Listen, you may be right, but that's okay. You can still be quiet about it. There's a time that we are to be silent. There's a time that we are to be humble, that we're to walk in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, you find more pride in the church than you find it outside the walls of the church. And that does not bring honor and glory to God. Well, the enemy comes and uh, begins to manipulate scripture. And I want to tell you, as we've looked through these three temptations, we see that every time he's tempted, what does Jesus do? You can talk in church a little bit, it's okay. He quotes scripture, doesn't he? Every time he's tempted, the enemy responds with scripture. Psalm 119, 11, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Listen, if the enemy knows the word, how much more important is it that we know the word? I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. How much time this last week did you spend in your Bible? How much time this last week did you spend in your Bible? How much time did you spend watching TV? 
How much time did you spend this week taking out your phone and just scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, social media, or those little short videos that you could just waste a whole lifetime flipping through? How much time did you spend this week doing things just for you? You see, if we're going to get serious about advancing the kingdom of God, the word of God must be important upon our life. The Barney Group did a, a study. They found that a third of Americans respond that moral decline was a result of people not reading their Bibles. They found that 88% of households own at least one Bible, but most own four Bibles. But yet only one in five Americans read their Bible on a regular basis, and almost 60% read their Bible four times a year or less. Listen, church, if we're going to be victorious over sin, we must fall in love with the Word of God. That's what we see from Jesus. He went back and he quoted Deuteronomy. He knew the Bible. He knew it in his heart. He didn't say, hang on, Satan, let me go find my Bible and find a verse. He knew exactly where it was. We must be involved in the study of the Word of God. You might not know exactly where it is. You might not can quote it perfectly. But if you know the truth of it, you will find victory over your sins. We also know that we must choose our, our pastors, our teachers, our spiritual leaders wisely because folks will come and they will take the scripture and they will twist it and they will manipulate it and they will look for riches from the people of God. And that's a shame, but it's true in our society. And so we must know the word of God. As we close, I want to show you one more thing. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 Verse 21. And while you're looking, I want you to realize that what's important for the Lord Jesus is that he stays in the will of God. He desires to stay in the will of God. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Peter had just declared Jesus as the Messiah, as who he is. And right after that, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. What, what happened? Jesus, Peter took Jesus aside. Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, for this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Once again, there's a calling to pull Jesus outside the will of God. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Anytime there is a calling to get outside the will of God, the enemy is behind it. In your life, the enemy is putting temptations in front of you. He's putting struggles in front of you so that you will be pulled outside the will of God. And when that happens, we must understand it is a tactic of the enemy. Now, let me tell you what I'm really concerned with. We have spent three weeks looking at this one passage. Three weeks looking at how we can overcome sin, how we can overcome temptation. Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will always provide a way of escape. Through the, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not enslaved to sin any longer. Amen? But here's what I'm concerned with. I'm concerned that we have spent all this time, that we have learned lessons from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Lord has shown us sin in our life that does not bring him honor or glory. Maybe it's we gossip, and we, we always like to stir trouble. Maybe we watch things that don't bring honor to Jesus. Maybe we struggle with something we look at on our phone or on the Internet. Maybe there's some type of conviction that's come upon your heart. But what really scares me is that we will study the Word of God in this depth. And then we'll leave this place with no intention to change anything. It scares me that there could be that conviction from the Holy Spirit that says, you need to change this. I've given you victory over sin. You don't have to live under this bondage any longer. And we've heard the truth of Scripture. But then we'll walk out the door and we'll continue living the same way that we have been. That's why the psalm says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me to the way of everlasting. One of the signs of true salvation is that we will be convicted of sin, and then we will repent. We'll turn from that sin. We will strive to live a life that brings great glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you to bow your head, and I want you to think about that. What has the Lord shown you through our time together? Is there a sin that he has shown you that, that you struggle with this? The Satan, Satan is winning the battle. He keeps showing this temptation and you keep giving in to it. But I provided a way of escape for you. You don't have to live in that sin any longer. And the time is now to change it. And I wonder, could it be today that you begin to walk in victory? Could it be today that you understand from the example of Jesus how to be victorious over sin? And you may sin, you will sin from time to time, but you will immediately feel conviction. You will turn from that sin. You'll live in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe for you today, there needs to be a confession of sin and a repentance from something that only you know about. Maybe today you realize, I bought into the prosperity gospel. I bought into some lies that I made a deal with God. God, I'll do this if you do this. And you realize that that's not biblical. And there needs to be a change because of that. Listen, maybe you're here and you're looking for a church home. A church home that's going to just preach the word of God. That's going to worship God because he is so good. We'd love to have you come join with us. Maybe you're here and you struggle with sin and you say, the reason is because I've never truly been saved and the Lord is calling you, leading you to salvation. I have no idea what God's put upon your heart, but I pray that you will be receptive and respond to it. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for each one who's come to be a part of this service. Lord, I pray you've spoken to our hearts in a great and mighty way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.